Chapter 29 That there was a rift became impossible to conceal. Pandu began to take positions at variance with Dhritarashtras. He constantly urged the adoption of a harder line against the British than the party. Its strategy, guided by Gangaji's wisdom and Dhritarashtra's cunning, was willing to adopt. When the Prince of Wales, an empty-headed lad with a winsome smile, paid a royal visit to examine the most prized jewel in the crown he was briefly to inherit, Pandu urged that he be boycotted. But Dhritarashtra instead persuaded the party to permit him to present to the prince a petition. Don't frown, Ganapati. Alliteration is my only vice, and after all, it is the one thing you can do in Sanskrit. When the government in London then sent a commission of seven white men to determine whether the derisory reforms of a few years earlier were helping Indians to progress to self-government, or whether, as Whitehall thought and wished to hear, the reforms had already gone too far and needed reformulating, Pandu proposed a non-violent stir at the docks to prevent the unwelcome seven from lighting onto Indian soil. But this time, Dhritarashtra wanted the party to content itself with, yes, Ganapati, you've guessed it, a boycott. And once again, with Gangaji's toothless smile of benediction behind him, Dhritarashtra had his way. It became apparent to Pandu that Dhritarashtra's triumphs were basically of Gangaji's making, and that a large number, perhaps a majority, of the Kaurava party were backing his half-brother, not because of any intrinsic faith in his ideas, but because they came with the blessings of the man Sir Richard had taken unpleasantly to describing as public enema number one. I myself caught a whiff of Pandu's bitterness at a working committee meeting of the party, which I happened to attend. At one point, I was talking to Dhritarashtra and the skeletal Gangaji when Pandu walked palely past. The Kaurava Trinity, he muttered audibly for my benefit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Of course, he was exaggerating my own importance, for I sought no active role in the Kaurava leadership. The mantle of elder statesman had fallen on me when I was scarcely old enough to merit the adjective, and I was content with the detachment that it permitted. But even my habitual sense of distance from the quotidian cares of the party could not prevent a stirring of disquiet which was instantly confirmed by Dhritarashtra's next words. I should have thought, he said lightly, but his face set, that my dear brother would have done better to refer to the Hindu trinity, the creator, the preserver and the destroyer. But then he would have had to include himself in the end, who wouldn't he? When the rivals fling jokes at each other, Ganapati, it means there is no turning back. Between opponents who will not physically fight, a punch line is equivalent to a punch. The disagreement came out in the open when the British convened what they called a round table conference in London to discuss the future of India. It is not often that a major international event is named after a piece of furniture, <coughs> but the round table in question was chosen quite deliberately and after a great deal of diplomatic deliberation. It served two functions. One, unmentioned, was to hark back to the host's glorious chivalric past under the legendary King Arthur, who, if he existed at all, was a superstitious cuckold, which is hardly any idea of a national hero. The second, 
openly cited at background briefings for the press was to place all the participants on an equal footing. To have a conventional table with a head might have implied that the British had their preferences among Indian leaders. And the British, of course, were noble and disinterested Solons who would never want anyone to think such a thing. Well, Ganapati, before you begin to suggest that this is all fine and democratic, let me tell you that the lack of preference is itself a preference. To put the true leaders of the people on the same level as princes and pretenders and pimps is not virtuous, but vicious. In this case, it meant reducing the Kaurava party, the only nationwide nationalist movement, the only broad-based popular organization, the very party whose campaigns of mass awakening and civil disobedience had obliged the British at last, at least, to talk with some Indians. It meant reducing the Kauravas to a level of official equality with all other self-appointed Indian spokesmen the British saw fit to recognize. And thus it was that Gangaji sat at his round table to parley with the British, surrounded by delegations of India's untouchables and its touch-me-nots, representatives of Indians with their foreskins cut off and Indians with their hair uncut, spokesmen for left-handed Indians, green-eyed Indians, Indians who believed in the, that the sun revolved around the moon. Mind you, the Kaurava party included members of every one of these minorities and could claim with justice to be able to speak for all their interests in the larger sense of the term. But the British were not interested in the larger sense at all. They wanted to introduce as many divisive elements as possible in order to be able to say to the world, you see, these Indians can never agree amongst themselves. We really have no choice but to continue ruling them indefinitely for their own good. Now, all this was known before the conference even started, Ganapati. That was the irony of it. What I'm saying to you does not come with the benefit of hindsight. What phrase that? Which of my readers will consider an old man's fading recollections a benefit? No, Ganapati. It is there in the public record. It is there in Pandu's impassioned entreaties to the Kaurava Working Committee. Don't go, don't let this be a party to this charade, he pleaded. But the working committee, at Dhritarashtra's glib urging, agreed not only to attend, but to send Gangaji as the party's sole representative to the conference. Pandu railed against this madness, as he called it. If we must go, let us go in strength. Let us send a delegation that reflects the numbers and diversity of our following, he argued. Once again, he was disregarded. The committee placed its faith in the man to whom many were already referring to in opium hagiology as Mahaguru, the great teacher. So Pandu stayed in front. He stayed in India and fretted. While the man he admired but could not bring himself to surrender everything to, crossed his legs on a cold wooden chair and awaited his turn to speak after the monarchists and the liberals and the Society for the Preservation of Imperial Connection which had each sent more than one representative to the round table than the Kauravas. But Pandu, though now bitter in his denunciation of his sightless sibling, was still a loyal party man. He remained so even when Ganga returned, having bared his chest on the newsreels and taken tea in his loincloth with the King Emperor. Your Majesty, you are wearing more than enough for the two of us, the Mahaguru had said disarmingly. 
but won no concessions from the circular and the circumlocutor's conferees. Pandu resisted the temptation to say, I told you so, and concentrated instead on building up support within the party councils. For once, my pale-faced, hot-headed son was going to wait until the time was ripe before striking. Do I give you the impression, Ganapati, that between my pale and purblind progeny, my sympathies lie only with Pandu? Do not be misled, my friend. India does not choose among her sons, and neither do I. They are both mine. Their flaws and foibles, their vanities and inanities, their pretensions and pride are all mine. I do not disown either of them any more than I could deny half my own nature. And besides, Pandu could be wrong as well, as was amply demonstrated in the affair of the Great Mango March. <laughs>